You are listening to the podcast of Grace Bible Church Ann Arbor. We are the rescued people of God joining His Great Restoration Project. More information, including sermons in this series, can be found at graceA2.org. Thanks so much for tuning in. Okay. <clears throat> well, Adam. Adam was not joking about Alex. He cannot stay awake. I've been with him in a movie before, and he falls asleep immediately as soon as he's in there. He's in there. Uh, each member of my family has a very different response to gift cards. Now, I'm not saying that we don't appreciate them or we don't say thank you or something like that. We, we all appreciate them, but everybody has a different response to the things that they determine are worth it or not to spend their gift card on. So a number of years ago, when my kids were younger, uh, all three of my sons, whose birthdays are relatively within the same couple months, they were given very generous gift cards to a sporting goods store near our house. Now, at that age, shopping with them was an absolute nightmare. It made me question everything about our parenting just to take them into a store. But in this case, we were not doing anything boring, like buying groceries. We were actually going to go shopping for them. And so we took the three of them with their very generous gift cards to this sporting goods store, and we went and we shopped. And it was actually a lot of fun to watch them determine what things they thought were worth it and what things weren't worth it. One of them could almost not think that anything was worth it. No, no matter what he saw, he was like doing math, trying to figure out, is this worth it? And how much of the card is that going to be? And he never actually bought anything until the very end where I was like, listen, you got to just buy one thing. Just buy one thing. And so he bought some cheap thing, and he was saving that gift card for the day when inspiration would strike. Another one of them, he decided that whatever was worth it was whatever his friends are into. So he was like just totally like, okay, what are my friends doing? If I buy this, then I can do this with my friends. And he even was like, and then I can maybe even use a gift card to buy something for my friends. He was just, it was all about other people in his math. That's how he determined what was worth it. And then the third one, it was as if everything was worth it to him. <laughs> Whatever he could see, he wanted. And I was like, buddy, are you really into girls lacrosse? And he's, girls what? As he puts another pink lacrosse stick into the cart, right? Like, he, he just, whatever he could see to him was worth it. He, they were all doing the math a little bit differently on which things are really worth it. A few years ago, the New York Times wrote an article to help people decide whether or not something was worth it. And they had this lovely little diagram. And this works pretty well for purchases, I think. Utility, enjoyment, and cost. If something is useful, you enjoy it, and the cost is right, at the intersection of those three circles, that's how you know whether or not something is worth it. And again, if you're trying to determine some, I, I, I don't know, like a hobby or a purchase or something like that, you can probably answer the question of whether or not it's worth it by using a diagram or something. But when it gets to the things in life that are a little bit more complex, there isn't just a simple process of a few circles that you can use to determine whether or not it's worth it. I mean, when you start thinking about things like relationships, should we have children? Should we stick together in our marriage? Should I stay in this faith? To ask, is it worth it, is a big question. And we need to figure out like an answer to it with something a little bit more than just 
basic math. And so today, we're going to be looking at Romans 8 together, where the Apostle Paul addresses whether or not it's worth it, in a sense. Now, he, he's been talking to a group of people where he's been saying, listen, you have this new life in Jesus. The Holy Spirit is there changing you into a new person, guiding you, encouraging you, shaping you, helping you become new in, in, in all ways. And that's amazing. And because the Holy Spirit is present in your life and you have this faith in Jesus, you have tremendous privileges and promises that are yours. They're yours. Like you get all this great stuff. And that seems amazing. But some of those promises feel like they're a little bit far away. And when life starts to get really hard and when suffering comes, for some of us, we start to go, I don't know if this is worth it. I think I believe. I keep showing up to church. I keep trying to pray. But life hurts right now. And I'm kind of wondering if this all in the end is worth it. And the Apostle Paul knew that as they read this letter in their church, there would be a person there whose spouse had just left them. And there would be a person there who was feeling grief over loss. And there would be a person there who may have had debilitating migraines. Or there would be a person there who has been struggling with some kind of temptation and it was leaving scars on them to just deal with this sin issue. And he knew there would be people who would be hurting and he's giving all these amazing things about the gospel. And he knew that there would be some that would go, is this really worth it? My guess is there might even be a couple of us in here today who are asking the same question. We are wondering because our chests feel a little hollow, our minds feel a little bit harried, and our prayers seem to never escape the room that we're in. And we wonder, okay, is this worth it? Well, he helps us answer that question. Let's look at Romans chapter 8. If you haven't opened your Bible already, you can grab the one in front of you. We're on page 944. Yes, I'm covering two verses that I also covered last week. Oh, I'm the worst. All right, we got that out of the way. But I don't know if you've noticed this. Romans 8 is like kind of unbelievably awesome and dense and brilliant. And there's just so many layers. And so, yeah, there's a little bit of overlap, but it's good, good stuff. Here we go. Romans 8, starting in verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, and hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray as for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groaning too deep for words. And he, he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. 
Today we're going to break this text down into three different parts. The first is the bad news. The second is the better way. And the third is the great promise. So let's start with the bad news. Now, the message of Jesus that Paul has been explaining to that church that in Christ's perfect life and sacrificial death, that he paid our debt before God, making a way for us to be called his children, like firstborn sons in the ancient world who inherited their father's full estate by grace through faith were saved. All of that, that is good news. And the gospel is regularly called the good news. And when you look at the promises of having Christ-like inheritance, you go, man, that is really, really good news. And yes, it is. It's incredible news. But if you read the Bible closely, you will also notice that in the Bible there's some bad news. A fair bit of it, actually. In fact, you don't have to look too far to find it, but there's bad news everywhere. And again, we try to hang on to the good news because the good news is that we get this amazing inheritance and all of that. And all of that is great, that we get this thing that we didn't deserve. That is wonderful. Before Tennessee businessman Bill Doris passed away, he had made up his mind to make sure that his eight-year-old Lulu would always be well cared for. And when he died, his dear friend and neighbor who had looked after Lulu many times when he was traveling was shocked at how much he had set aside to take care of his loved one. He had set aside $5 million to take care of Lulu. Now, I have a picture of Lulu here for you. When you think about it, you go, she's a dog. What could Lulu possibly have done to earn $5 million? Oh, don't be so mean. Dogs are... No, come on, stop it. We like our dogs. Dogs can be great, but they cannot earn $5 million. All they can do is be the recipient of a generous master. And we are not dogs. We're human beings created in the image of God. But the distance between us and the Almighty Creator is more vast than that of dog to master. And yet we have this good news that we have an incredible inheritance because Jesus' death secured it for us. But again, there is this bad news lurking in the Bible right around the corner after every promise. It feels like it's there. We saw it in verse 17. It says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. It would be nice to just check the box that we've agreed to the terms and conditions and not read the fine print here. But it's important that we see this. That yes, there's good news, but there's also bad news. And the bad news is this. Pain and suffering is inevitable. All of you will suffer. That's the end of the sermon. How's that feel? <laughs> You're like, well, great, because it's quick, but not leaving me in a good spot. All of us suffer. None of us are exempt. And this should be abundantly clear as we read through the various characters in the Bible and we meditate on books like Job or we consider the work of Jesus. When we follow Jesus, it does not mean that we will only experience pleasure and fulfillment from this moment forward. We will suffer and hurt, and unless Jesus returns first, we will die. Now, there are some of us that work really, really hard to avoid any discomfort or suffering or pain. 
We work really hard at it. You know, it's like, well, my loved one left me, so I'm going to turn to whiskey. Cue the country song, right? Or, oh, I don't want to think about my life too much. I'm going to distract myself. Just constant screens, screens, video games. Or every time the conversation moves in an uncomfortable direction, we like want to run away from it and change the subject because if we can avoid any kind of discomfort, we're going to do that. And it does make some sense to avoid unnecessary discomfort. But the bad news is you can't run forever. It doesn't matter how much you pamper yourselves or you hide from it. Bad things are going to happen to all of us. Now, suffering and death was not part of the original intention of creation. It's more like, a, like an infection that gets in the blood and impacts the whole body. Sin got into creation and impacted everything. Look again at verse 22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we await eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Pain and suffering are universal that it makes us groan. And it's so universal that nothing can ever be perfect. Like you can be in the most perfect and ideal setting and still out of the blue, you're like, ah, oh, this can't last. Has that ever happened to you before? I remember this one time, there was a few of us families together, and we were walking along a boardwalk on a beautiful beach, and this blue skies were shining. Let's take our February minds there. And, and a nice breeze was coming off of the ocean, and we were looking for a beachside restaurant to grab some lunch or dinner, and our kids were all laughing and squealing and playing, and seagulls are doing their thing, and it was awesome. And all of a sudden, I was like, ah, oh, this isn't going to last. And it wasn't just like, this day is not, but like, they're getting older. Bad stuff's going to happen to them. Bad stuff's going to happen to me. There's going to be grief in this family. I mean, it was like the most beautiful thing ever, and then all of a sudden it's just, oh, that's right, this groan in my spirit. That's the bad news. There's suffering in this life for all of us. And let me make it worse, just for a second. If you're a Christian, you might suffer more in some ways. This is like the worst sell job ever. But you might actually suffer a little bit more if you follow Jesus. Like, for example, Christians might endure spiritual attacks at times where they have intense seasons of doubt and fear and anxiety that can shake us to our very core about the thing that matters most to us, our faith. If you're a Christian, you might suffer that way. You may suffer the pain of sacrifice where you're trying to do what you think Jesus would call you to and then everybody ignores you and like doesn't care about it and you're just out some time and some money and you got no credit in reverse. You may suffer the pain of trying to forgive someone who frankly doesn't deserve it, but you feel like you're supposed to. There's pain there. You may suffer the pain of resisting temptation when it would be way more fun to just give it. That causes pain. And there are Christians throughout the world who are beaten, mocked, and even killed, persecuted because they are Jesus followers. The bad news is everyone suffers. The worst news is Christians may suffer even a little bit more than some others. So then, are we ever going to pick our heads? What do we do? Part two. The better way. The better way. 
It is not unusual for folks who are suffering to become angry, to isolate themselves from others, or even ultimately to walk away from God. But there is a better way to deal with suffering that the Apostle Paul teaches. Earlier in chapter 5, this is what he said. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So one of the better ways here when suffering happens is to rejoice rather than rage. Some of us are inclined to become angry when there is suffering. Now, there is a good kind of anger over suffering. There is a type of anger where you are energized to respond to a real need. That's a good kind of anger. But there's another kind of anger that can come in response to suffering that is not good and is not healthy. And generally, what that anger sounds like is, how could this happen to me? The whole world is suffering, I know that in a general sense, but this is happening to me. God, how can you let that happen? Now, some of us have said that before. We've even turned that into a prayer of sorts. We've, we've kind of gone internal with our anger, but the Apostle Paul says, no, no, we rejoice in suffering. How do you rejoice in suffering? Well, the only way you can rejoice in suffering is if you believe, like he said, that God can turn it into something better. I mean, I suppose if we worship a God who turned the death of his innocent son into eternal life, then he can turn my pain into something a little bit better. Yeah, but how could he do that? How could God do that? Well, one of the things that happens in suffering is that God strips away our idols when we suffer. He strips away the incredibly powerful idols that I have in my life, like the, the idol of control, the idol of comfort, the idol of success. And when we begin to hurt, we start to realize how important it is for us to have the temperatures just right and to be fed three squares at exactly the right time and for everyone to agree with us. And when that's not happening, we start to go, oh, I actually need some of those things, maybe in a way that is more substantial than I even recognize my need for God. I have known um, some great, strong, brilliant men who, when they suffered, had to face up to a few idols in it. Because their whole lives, they had been capable and strong and put together and quick and then as their bodies broke down in old age, they realized, oh, I can't produce very much anymore. And I can't lift very much anymore. I'm not even bringing value to any circumstance. In fact, other people have to serve me all the time. And it's a very difficult emotional, spiritual thing for people, anyone to go through, especially when your whole life you've been the guy making it happen. And I remember talking to my dad, and he said, uh, he said, Ty, Growing old ain't for sissies. And he's right. Because when you grow old, it starts to strip away all that stuff you thought you were. And pretty soon, you go, what's left? It's just me and you, God. And I'm at the mercy of all these people who are serving me. And as brutal as that is, it can produce something really, really good in us if we start to recognize the truth, which is that 
We were never put on this earth to produce a whole bunch of stuff and to be really strong and wealthy. We're God's sons for his good pleasure, breathing his good air until he should call us home. We were here to reflect his image in whatever state our minds and our bodies are in at any given moment. In another letter, Paul writes, We do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. We're not going to lose heart. It's going to be hard. But if we're getting broken down and old, we'll just have to say, God, you must be doing something really good in me. Because the outside stuff hurts. The better way is to rejoice rather than rage. What else? The Spirit, verse 16 Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Do you see how much togetherness language is in here? The better way to suffer is to share it together rather than to isolate yourself. The better way to suffer is to share rather than to isolate. Some of us try to go our pain and our suffering alone. And the reason we try to go our pain and suffering alone in our minds is that we're trying to protect everybody else from having to deal with how miserable we are. Right? Like we don't want to tell each other about how much we're struggling because if I tell you, then I might burden you. So I'm just going to keep this to myself. Well, guess what, y'all? You getting crushed by your own suffering in a corner, it's not all that helpful to me. You might think, well, me just, uh, just getting crushed under the weight of my pain, that's better than sharing it. How is that better? How is that? How is it? For some of us, I actually think it might be. Maybe. Maybe you're, maybe you're all very altruistic in your, in your isolation. But for some of us, I think it's actually pride. It's pride that I don't want you to know that I struggle. And not only that, I don't think you can understand how much I struggle because you, your life is perfect. Or it's at least a lot better than mine. Like you couldn't handle what I've got going on. Um, You're wrong. Like look around. I know some more stories than you know probably in this room. There's a whole bunch of really wounded, broken hurting, still trying to walk with Jesus' people in this room. They are way more capable than you might think. And the most put-together, good-looking, whatever, whatever, upwardly mobile person in here still has stuff. And they may not be able to carry all your stuff, but all of us can carry a little bit of your stuff. And so the better way here is not to go, I'm going to just get internal, I'm going to do this myself, I'm going to isolate. No, we need to think like a church. We need to think like a small group. We need to think like friends and family that we don't have to suffer. You know, do you know who suffered alone? Jesus. He's the only one. There was a moment where he looked and not even God was looking at him. And he said, my God, my God. He did that so that we don't have to. He was the only one to bear it by himself. We don't have to do that. It is better to rejoice than rage. It is better to share than to isolate. Verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and if children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him 
in order that we may also be glorified with him. It is better to turn towards rather than away from Jesus in our suffering. To suffer with him rather than apart from him. I heard a story last week of a young man. For a season, he had battled his sexual temptation that he didn't believe aligned with the way of God. And this battle caused him quite a bit of emotional, maybe even physical suffering and pain as he was trying to resist this particular temptation in his life that he just thought, I can't do that. But at some point, the cost of resisting that temptation became too great for him. And he thought, I can keep staying with Jesus and feel this kind of pain and resisting this, or I can just quit on the Jesus thing and dive headlong into my sin. And he chose to do that instead. And so he left his, his family, his church, all these friends that knew him, and he just gave himself over to his sin because he wasn't sure that it was worth it anymore because of how much it hurt to resist the temptation. Now, people tell different stories about walking away from the faith. And I think there's lots of reasons why people do. I don't want to oversimplify this. But many times people will say, well, it was really an intellectual issue or it was a philosophical question for which I couldn't find satisfactory answers. But sometimes when you ask more questions, what you find out is, yes, those questions were there. And also, I just got divorced. And also, there's a terrible health situation. And also, I'm grieving. That this pain that we experience in suffering can sometimes, for some of us, cause us to walk out on a relationship with God in some ways before it even really starts. To just leave behind whatever faith we were sort of investigating and moving towards because we're just not sure it's worth it anymore. And the better way is to move toward the God of open arms than to move away. Helen Roosevelt, an English missionary who passed away 40 years ago or so, She served in what is uh, now called the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And she endured imprisonment and torture during the civil war that was going on there at that time. And of that time, she said this. She said, I wasn't praying. I was beyond praying. Someone back home was praying earnestly for me. If I'd prayed any prayer, it would have been, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But then suddenly there was God. I didn't see a vision. I didn't hear a voice. I just knew with every ounce of my being that God was actually vitally there. God, in all his majesty and power, he stretched out his arms to me. He surrounded me with his love, and he seemed to whisper to me. Now listen to her words. These are God's words to her. 20 years ago, you asked me for the privilege of being a missionary. This is it. Don't you want it? These are not your sufferings. They're not beating you. These are my sufferings. All I ask of you is to loan me your body. What she says is that he didn't take away the pain or the cruelty or the humiliation. Nope. It was all there. But now, she says, it was altogether different. It was with him, for him, and in him. He was actually offering me the inestimable privilege of sharing in some little way the edge of the fellowship of suffering. Isn't that powerful? What a legend Helen is. When we suffer, we must turn toward Jesus 
rather than away. Drawing near to the Father whose arms are open, like a kid with a skin knee, burying our head in the Father's chest and letting him absorb our tears. When Helen couldn't even summon the words to pray in her story, notice what Paul said in these verses, verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. The Spirit meets us in our pain and intercedes for us, drawing us near. So there's a better way to rejoice rather than rage, to share rather than isolate, to turn toward rather than away. But what if I'm doing all of that and I'm still hurting really bad? Well, I'm glad you stuck around for part three. The great promise, the great promise. There are a couple of different promises here in Romans to us for those of us who have actually placed our faith in Jesus, and these are incredible. The first is one that I've just been thinking about more often lately, and that is there's a promise of inheriting the earth. You and I are promised to inherit creation like the earth. Where is that? Okay, Romans 4, for the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be the heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Part of our great promise if we suffer with him is that we will inherit the earth. Now, I have, confession time, a very uh, strong desire to own a massive chunk of land. <laughs> Anybody else? Am I, is this just me? Am I the only one? Just me, a couple of us. And I want this really big piece of land that's going to be, you know, just perfect. I have like a little creek on it or whatever. And I like a little farm and like a big area for hunting. Animal sanctuary, I mean. Um, <laughs> You know, I, I just, it's got to be just so. And um, I spend far too much time looking at real estate listening, uh, uh, listings. And my wife is just kind of rolling her eyes, you know, whatever. And uh, I'm trying to explain to her that it's actually a spiritual thing. Uh, <laughs> because I want to own this. I just want to, I don't want to hold like something and call it mine. You can come. It's open. But I just want it to be mine, kind of. And I, I, don't, I don't think this is just a selfish thing. This doesn't just happen to me when I'm, like, looking at real estate listening, uh, listings. Like, if I'm going on vacation someplace that's beautiful, right? Like the Sleeping Bear Dunes area. And I see there's a cottage on a beach or whatever. And I'm like, this is gorgeous. I would love to own a place here. And we go to a restaurant. And I grab those little real estate little books, you know. And I look at How much? Yeah, too much, you know. Or, or I go on a hike in the Ozarks in Arkansas, and I'm just like, this is incredible. I want that mountain. <laughs> and some of you think I'm kidding, but I'm not. Like, I'm driving around like we're on the bus in Galilee, and I'm like, I would love a chunk of this. <laughs> and everywhere I go, because there's something that brings me joy about that place, I want to just, like, hold. I just, like, I just want, again, you can come. I'm not saying I want to keep it away from you. I'm saying I just want it to feel like it's mine. It is. It actually is. Like there will come a day where wherever I go, every last tree, beach, mountain will be mine. And yours. It will be ours. 
And not only that, but everywhere I go, the land, the creatures, the trees, the waters will be like a Labrador when you come home, excited to see me. Like the trees will be like, oh, you're here. And the creek will like be babbling with delight at my presence and yours. And then when I see one of you, I'm going to be so awed by the glory that is you. I'm going to be, oh my God, I can't even like describe, I don't even know how to approach you. And you're going to feel the same way towards me because we're going to inherit it all someday. And so I've been, this is so corny. Uh, this is what Romans will do to you. I've been driving and I'll be like, that's mine. That's mine. That's mine. I wish I could say I'm no longer looking at real estate listings. I still am, but... But part of the promise to us is that it's all ours, that this is what we've been created for, to walk the new earth and the new heavens and for it to be excited, ecstatic to see us. We're not going to be hurting it. We'll be part of it. That's part of the great promise. The other part of the great promise that's not just said there in chapter 4, but it's said here, is there's a promise of great glory to be revealed. Not only will we inherit the earth, but we will in some way have glory revealed to us so great that our current suffering will fade in its light. I consider, verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present age are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Our suffering will come to an end and be replaced by something so incredibly good that it will overshadow the hurt. Now, this is a silly example, and if you're not a Michigan fan, this may not appeal to you. But I I grew up rooting for Michigan, mostly because I like the color blue. So from my earliest days, I'm like, am I going to pick a blue team, a red team, or a green team? Clearly the blue team. And so I've been paying attention my whole life more than I should. And I actually have allowed my emotions, this is really foolish, to go like this, depending on what's going on in a football game. Anybody? That's also just me? Okay, there's one. And so I, I, as a fan of a team, and y'all have experienced this with whatever team you root for, there are times where bad things have happened that were so bad that I was just like, I think I'm done rooting for this thing. Trouble with the snap. I'm over. Like, I'm done. Like, that sat with me. JT was short, by the way. He was also short. The TCU pick sixes. You know, if you're not into football, you know what I'm talking about. But some of these moments where I was just like, this hurts. But listen, if in the midst of the trouble with the snap and the JT being short and the pick sixes of TCU, in the midst of the worst moments in the last 10 years, let's say, if you had come to me and you said, Ty, hang in there. Hang in there. I guarantee you they're going to win the championship in the year 2024. And it's going to be so good that these moments are not going to hurt nearly as much. If you said, if I could guarantee you the championship, will you take that bad moment and that bad moment and that bad moment? I would say, of course, bring it on. Bring it on. Because once the championship is won, the rest of it all fades away. Listen, we are suffering We cannot see the final score, but we're going to win. We're going to win. And actually, it's going to be so glorious that if you could see it in light of your current suffering, you'd go, bring it on. 
bring on the pain. I'm not asking for more. I'm not going to run headlong into foolishness. I'm not saying that. But you would say it's so good that even this bad isn't all that bad. 2 Corinthians 4.17, For this light, momentary affliction, light, momentary affliction, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. God is so brilliant and good and capable that he can and he will use everything, including suffering and even death, as a tool to develop and change us for the better and to bring us to our grand inheritance. And we cannot see it yet, but the eternal weight of glory is ours. It's only a matter of time. Imagine the Apostle Paul has just like spoken on this or written this. And he did it to a church congregation like this. And imagine that somebody right afterwards ran up to him and said, but, but Pastor Paul, my wife left me. Now, I think he would have a little bit more pastoral sensitivity than to just blow that off. But he could legitimately say, I know that this hurts. But the one who actually knows you the best and loves you the most deeply will never abandon you. I promise you in Christ, real joy, delight, and satisfaction are yours forever. But Paul, my, my mother just passed away. I think he, would, he could say, death is awful, but it doesn't last. There is a feast with your mother beyond your wildest dreams, and that celebration will never end if you are in Christ. But Pastor Paul, I'm, I'm trying to follow Jesus, but I just found out that I have a terminal disease. He might say, listen, your body will one day be so perfected that it will cause you to laugh at the memory of your disease. And in fact, if this disease takes you to see Jesus sooner, you will thank God for this disease someday. It is only a matter of time. If you knew now what you will someday know, you will look at this pain and this suffering and you will think, bring it on because sweet victory is ours. Friends, there, there will be a day when your body will not ache or hurt or long for things that it cannot have. There will be a day when all the tears will be dried and the hungers will be satisfied and the hurts will be healed. There will be a day of true fulfillment and delight and peace forever. There will be a day of shalom where everything is put back together. It's just a matter of time. So is it worth it? Is it really really worth it, I think we wouldn't even ask that question if we could see the glories that are to come. Let's pray. Father, I know that in a room like this, I, I'm touching nerves and sensitive issues because the, the pain is very, very real. And Father, 
I cannot understand all that folks are walking through, but you do. And there have been times where these folks haven't even been able to pray, but your spirit is there doing a powerful ministry and praying on their behalf. God, I would ask for the person who's been standing on the sidelines because they're not sure that it's worth it, that you would convince them of these glorious promises and that they can walk and be, be your son, your daughter, that they can be in your presence if they'll just place their faith in Christ. And I pray for the person who's hurting so badly to just for a moment taste how good of a father you are and how glorious our future will be. We pray these things in Jesus' name.